I'd like to talk about practice and life as celebration. As mentioned, the importance of practice and development of positive qualities in our minds and the ways we can do that, such as practicing metta or compassion or sympathetic joy or ways we are doing this in the Vipassana practice, generating patience, interest, effort, awareness, insight. There's another whole different way of doing this. It's what the Tibetans call the seven limb puja or ceremony. And you might have seen them doing their thing, chanting, recitations and mudras and ringing their bells. And this seven part ceremony is often an important part of what is going on when they do this. It's a practice and in a way it's also more than that. It's really a celebration. It's turning practice into a celebration of life, one could say. It's also an aspect of uh, manifestation of spirituality that is often misunderstood. People either like when they do this because they think it's far out or it's so nice or it sounds good or it's fantastic or then they think, you know, it's bullshit, empty ritual and it doesn't have much meaning. Also perhaps if we see a little more into it, it can be that one is critical because it can become so easily and it has become an empty and meaningless performance. But everything can. You know, we can be sitting here in the hall. I don't know. Some might, you know, and not be present, isn't it? We could spend quite some time in the hall not being pleasant, uh, not being present. So then in one way that is a kind of a funny ritual. You know, we sit here and we think about Switzerland or, you know, whatever. So that possibility is inherent in any kind of outer form. If this is properly understood and practiced, it can become part of the web or makeup our practice and of our most of our way of being, I could say. These seven parts or seven limbs we're talking about here are, and some of them are quite unusual, maybe for us. They're bowing or paying respect, reverence, we're making offerings, confession of negativities. Rejoicing in virtue, requesting for the Dharma to 
be taught. Requesting realized beings to stay on in life or to return to this realm. And the seventh one is dedication or sharing. Now go to each point. And all this is very much referring to some old traditions. Now traditionally this is preceded by the taking of refuge and by the veneration of a compassionate altruistic attitude. It's called bodhicitta. Altruistic meaning not just concerned with self but with all of life. Both this taking refuge and generating that attitude of bodhicitta are really clarification in terms of what we are doing and where we are going in our practice and in our life. Refuge has to do with maybe we could say what we relate to and what we entrust ourselves to. While bodhicitta, the altruistic attitude, has to do with the reason we do it, where we come from, the motivation, what and who we're doing it for. We entrust ourselves or we take as our inner direction awakening our own potential for freedom the Buddha a word which means awakened our Buddha nature within we could say perhaps that means that our most central concern in life is not necessarily our career promotion it's not our house car, supermarket, it's not traveling here and there, it's not even our family or our friends in itself. That's not saying that those things cannot be very important or have their place, but it is really wisdom itself and the compassion and kindness that can come with that. And we entrust ourselves to the Dharma, to things as they are, reality, here and now, as it really is. Not necessarily to our deluded or distorted way of seeing it, but to as it really is. It's also entrusting ourselves to the teachings and all the ways and means that lead to understanding of this reality lead to wisdom and to compassion. And we take refuge in our spiritual friends, the Sangha, good company, also in the wholesome qualities that they represent and live. And in some ways we could also say in that respect we take refuge 
in our own wholesome deeds. This is Rumi. Three companions for you. Number one, what you own. He won't even leave the house for some danger you might be in. He stays inside. Companion number two, your good friend. He at least comes to the funeral. He stands and talks at the gravesite. No further. The third companion, what you do, your act, goes down into death to be there with you to help. Take deep refuge with that companion beforehand. Taking refuge can become a practice that is very meaningful. It would mean to consider those aspects of what our inner direction is, of what we entrust ourselves to, maybe once a day, every so often, maybe before every major undertaking, or whenever we have to make decisions, to just remember You know, I can decide this and this and this. What is my essential direction in life? And sometimes it becomes so much more obvious what we want to decide. Not always, but it can clarify a lot. Clarifies our life. It sets very clear values and priorities. And is very powerful as a practice. To the degree our refuge deepens within to that degree we also begin to become a refuge for others someone who is truly concerned with awakening or even someone that is truly awake someone who acts out of wisdom and compassion is a refuge to others is sangha to others We also look at our motivation, the reason for practice, and for anything we do in life. We can start looking at our decisions and actions, not simply in the light of our very personal interests, but rather in terms of impact, in terms of compassion, in terms of concern for all of life. Of course, that doesn't mean we need to pretend that from now on all we do is purely unselfish and altruistic. We also don't want to use this to make ourselves feel guilty each time we do something for ourselves. I think that would be missing the point. But it's about having an open heart and a wider perspective on things. A perspective that considers all of life, all living creatures, creatures, including ourselves, of course. It lends vastness and vision to our practice. 
and it cuts out some of the pettiness and narrowness of our being. It's a wonderful attitude. Eventually it makes our practice into bodhisattva practice. Sometimes one's practice is compared to sun rays that come into a dark room and make it light and bright, maybe into some hole or a window, an opening, and we start to see in the room there's brightness. Bodhisattva practice is compared to the bright sun that floods the entire earth and a lot more vast parts of the universe. It has to do with our perspective on what we're doing here. And we might be doing the same thing in the same practice, but we can lend it a whole different flavor with that motivation. So then we can look at the first limb of the seven limbs which is bowing, or we could say paying homage. Bowing is quite a strong form of showing respect, reverence. It's an expression of homage, devotion, surrender. And in the West, we somehow have lost this form. And again, maybe it has to do with its negative sides, its drawbacks. There's a problem that we often have to face as soon as we get into actual forms. Can be misunderstood, can be misused, can become mechanical, devoid of actual meaning, sort of an empty ritual, can even become superstition. So bowing can become a sign of submissiveness and be a manifestation of blind belief, of patience, uncritical and unquestioning acceptance of what is seen as authority. But that is not what is meant by it. Genuine bowing is very beautiful and maybe we have to try it again, discover it, practice it. Sometimes there's real resistance, and that can be even stronger when we look at what we're bowing to, because that can be quite unclear. It always gets tricky in outer forms and manifestations because we sort of determine things then in a tangible way. So what could we bow to? It could be to forms such as statues or pictures or symbols for those who can relate to that, who and find that helpful, and who can get a sense of the meaning those forms and symbols represent. 
not mixing up the form for what it stands for. But it can be also, and that's in a way much more essential, to qualities, positive qualities of the universe, of life, positive qualities of the heart and mind in beings that are realized in others, in ourselves. Again, it can be to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, in the sense I mentioned before, to awakening, freedom, completion, to teachings and practice, and to spiritual friends. Bowing is a very powerful practice. Achancha puts it. Bowing is a very important form of practice. It is also a good remedy for our conceit. When you bow, you can keep in mind the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That is, the qualities of purity, radiance, and peace. Those who have really become harmonious with the Dharma get far beyond selfishness. And everything they do is a way of bowing. Walking, they bow. Eating, they bow. Defecating, they bow. In some Zen schools, one turns and bows to oneself, to where one will sit or just sat. And it's not paying homage to the zafu or the chair, obviously. It's not paying homage to one's small self. It's paying homage to that wisdom that completion within ourselves that is there. This is a poem by Suryadas, a friend of mine who spent almost a decade in retreat. For twelve years I have been bowing before Lord Buddha. Today he bows to me. Sometimes people complain, they find retreats, Vipassana retreats, very dry. Well, maybe there's something to it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I know it can be very difficult and demanding. That's very obvious. But also there is, there is a real positiveness and an inspiration about it that can be incredibly joyful. What we do here, what can be accomplished, is not less than freedom from suffering. And that is amazing, and that is worthy of our devotion. It's very joyful, it's quite incredible. This is what we bow to. This is what we feel devotion and inspiration for. It might not always be like, you know, incredible far-out feeling, but something much deeper that is an attitude that is really at the basis of what motivates us to do this.
in Tibetan Buddhism, it's also seen as a purification practice. As I mentioned, they do 100,000 grand prostrations as one of their preliminary practices. And having done a set of 100,000, it can be very powerful. Different from thinking about it when you actually do it. And I also mentioned Lama Tsongkhapa, the great scholar and yogi and reformer of Tibetan Buddhism, doing 35 sets of preliminary practice to his long retreat. 35 sets of 100,000. If we don't like the idea of bowing outwardly, or sometimes I think it's really not a good situation, or one just doesn't feel like, or doesn't want to be misunderstood in that, we can do it inwardly. That's just as worthwhile. Because it's really an attitude. It's an inner attitude of reverence. That's what really matters. Because obviously we can do the bowing outwardly and not have that sense, that attitude, and it will be meaningless. In some way, bowing is an offering. We offer ourselves, our body, our being, our life. And that's what the second limb is all about offering. Again, it's something somewhat unusual for many of us. Maybe again a little touchy. After expressing our respect through bowing, we show reference. We practice openness. We manifest generosity through offering. In some traditions, actual or symbolic offerings are offered to visualized forms of Buddhas, of awakening, of supreme qualities. Or maybe we bow and offer ourselves to love. This is Kabir, great bhakti and devotee of God, love. I know the sound of the ecstatic flute, but I don't know whose flute it is. A lamp burns and has neither wick nor oil. A lily pad blossoms and is not attached to the bottom. To the, bottom. the moon bird's head is filled, is filled with nothing but thoughts of the moon. And when the next rain will come, is all that the rainbird thinks of. Who is it we spend our entire life loving? Offering, too, can be a great gesture of great beauty, depth, and meaning, or, again, an empty form, a meaningless ritual or a superstition. If it's done from our heart with generosity, it brings abundance. If it's done mechanically 
or even with the idea of gaining, it's useless. I heard of Buddhist places, no, larger names mentioned, where people actually offer car, paper cars, refrigerators, uh, paper money, and all kinds of things, because you know, what you offer, the same kind of thing you get back. It can get so totally out of anything meaningful. So we need to understand the essence of it and not the outer form. The story of the man who regularly offered some money and gifts to a rabbi as he did this, he became wealthier. Getting wealthier, he made more offerings. And one day he had an idea. He thought, it's said that the holier the person is to whom you offer, the greater the merit, the gain you get in return will be. So I'll make offerings and gifts to the rabbi's master. But as he did so, he became, became poorer and poorer. He really became desperate and finally asked the rabbi about it. And the rabbi said to him, Look, as long as you gave and did not bother to whom, whether to me or another, God gave to you and did not bother to whom. But when you began to seek out especially noble and distinguished recipients, God did exactly the same. <laughs> So it's to offer, to give, with an open heart, period. That's it. The different levels, or one could say areas, of offering. On one level, one offers objects. It can be objects of the senses flowers and beautiful sights and forms, sounds and music, smells and incense, fine taste and food, things pleasant to the touch, and nice things imagined. And we don't even necessarily need to go and, you know, when we want to offer flowers, go out and cut them all, you know, and bring them somewhere. We can offer them right as we see them and enjoy them. Beautiful landscape, anything. Nice smell coming from the kitchen, we can offer it right then. It includes the offering of prayers and praise. It includes chanting, reciting of the qualities of the Dharma, so forth. It can even include dancing. Maybe not in this retreat. Tibetans dance and act out the history of Dharma, the inner history and the outer history. In ancient India, Sri Chaitanya, Mirabai and others have spent their life singing and dancing in devotion to truth, to the Dharma. With this 
attitude and practice. We go through life not so much busy with looking for what we can get and accumulate, but offering, giving away whatever good thing there is. Anything that comes along our way. So, practice also becomes a celebration and can be very joyful. And it's not some kind of small, petty activity we do from time to time to quiet, quieten our mind or to arrange things so it gets more pleasant or, you know, all these ideas we have a sitting should be. That's not so much the concern anymore. It all becomes more including, less. On another level, we offer ourselves, our senses, our bodies, our life. We apply it in practice, we use it in service, we give it away for the purpose of true understanding, for the sake of living beings, for the sake of the planet. It's a practice of devotion. We truly devote our life, devote our life to what is most meaningful. On yet another level, we see the emptiness of it all. Empty beings offering empty forms to empty qualities. No one who gives, no one who receives. And the offering itself is empty too. So it's a dance, it's a dance of celebration and emptiness and can be very deep. One might begin in this seeing Buddha, awakening, compassion, more outside of oneself. That too changes as our understanding grows. When Tibetans do their puja, as I mentioned before. The one essential part is to visualize oneself as the Buddha, and then the offerings are made to oneself, but not to oneself in that way we usually perceive ourselves, but in a way of offering it to a fully enlightened being. being or qualities that are really within us as well. If those qualities were not within us, we couldn't possibly produce them. We couldn't make them up. I mean, can you imagine how long we would have to sit making up love, making up wisdom. I mean, it's absurd even to imagine. So it must be present already must be within. Inside this clay jug there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water 
If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth. Friend, listen. The God whom I love is inside. And as we go on that separation or distinction of inner and outer falls away as well. And what we see is life, playing with life. The next two aspects. Acknowledging or confessing our negativities and rejoicing in virtue. Confession or disclosure of negativities is actually quite a common practice in many spiritual traditions. And in some way also among people in ordinary ordinary life. It's something we do sometimes among each other. This too, when misused and misunderstood, it can become an empty ritual or worse. It can be a way of making ourselves feel guilty, create a sense of any unworthiness. But when properly understood and applied, it can be a very freeing act. It means that we acknowledge that we're not infallible and even more that we don't need to be infallible. It's a statement saying that we make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes sometimes. So we don't need to get caught and lost in feelings of guilt or get caught in believing that the negativities are who I really am. I am such a negative person, such an angry person. don't need to identify with those qualities. And therefore it sets the stage for forgiveness, for an attitude of love and compassion for ourselves. When we see and feel for ourselves that this action or that attitude has not been very helpful, not been very skillful, and it has been rather painful for oneself or others, we decide that therefore I'll try my best not to do it again, and that's all. It's also in a way non-suppressive. We clearly see the unskillfulness, acknowledge that, and then forgive, let go. Doing this, being clear in this way, is an act of awareness, of honesty, and then of forgiveness. And through that, it is a kind of a purification, a release. And then we go even a step further. Instead of getting stuck in guilt and feeling unworthy, we remember we call up all our virtues our inner beauty, our goodness, and we rejoice in that. We acknowledge, appreciate. 
our own good qualities. And as we have been looking into it, very often not that easy and important for us to practice, to dare to think of our virtues and rejoice in them, strengthen them in that way. It lends that quality of joy, of more ease to the practice. And that seems very essential, especially in terms of when we take a long-term view of our practice. It needs to have that quality, otherwise it gets, we get bogged down with it. It gets too dry and we lose it loses the truth and we lose the inspiration with it. This is Kabir again. Have you heard the music that no fingers enter into? Far inside the house. Entangled music. What is the sense of leaving your house? Suppose you scrub your ethical skin until it shines but inside there is no music, then what? Muhammad's son ponders over words and points out this and that, but if his chest is not soaked dark with love, then what? The yogi comes along in her famous orange, but if inside she is colorless, then what? As we open to that kind of practice, we will find it more and more easy to rejoice in others' goodness and virtue. It comes also a force that uproots jealousy and envy. The next two limbs are requests. Requesting for the teaching, the Dharma, and that's a very traditional Tibetan Mahayana Buddhist one, requesting highly realized teachers not to pass beyond into Parinirvana, but to come back over and over and teach again, return to this realm for it to be available for guidance. In most Buddhist traditions, there is a formula that is recited before teaching or before the refuges are given, precepts or initiations are given. When this kind of request is done with understanding, it is very meaningful. For the person who makes the request, it requires being interested, open and receptive. It means that the teaching then is very much welcome and it's not forced upon one. It counteracts conceit because one asks for it and therefore opens. It also counteracts disinterest and closeness. It requires an attitude of simplicity and some kind of 
humbleness. Teachers are supposed to teach on request, give retreats on request. It keeps teachers from becoming missionaries, keeps them somewhat from teaching out of their ambition or out of their need to be somebody. Then the guidance that's given can come out of compassion, hopefully, as a response to a request. In Asia, people often have to go out of their way to get the teachings. And that does enhance the appreciation. In Japanese Zen monastery, they had sometimes to stand or kneel or somehow wait outside the gate for three days before they were let in. And I was just, uh, this spring I was in a retreat in a Rinzai Zen monastery. I didn't do the Zen thing, but we were doing another retreat at that place. And I remember they have a big entry hall and sometimes um, teachers arrive and they do the ceremonies of welcoming them. It was also the office and where we had our bulletin board, so I looked, sometimes walked there. And there's this guy, sort of half sitting there, you know, on this edge like that with his coat and his back, and he was there, and I was wondering. And then in the evening, I happened to be there again, and the guy was still there. And I thought, what was he doing, you know? And the uh, next day I looked, and he was there again. And I asked the people in the monastery in the office, and they said they don't really, you know, he wouldn't have to do it anymore. They sort of dropped that, but he decided to take that tradition through and see how it would be. And for me, I just realized, you know, see this guy all the time, that they're bringing some food, and then he said, they say he makes a request, and we're supposed to say no. And in a way, it was played, the whole thing because they don't do it anymore. You can just drive up with your car and go in. There you are. <laughs> but to see that he was giving three days, doing, you know, he was not doing anything. He was just waiting there for three days and three nights. He didn't look very comfortable either. I was very impressed. Um, being Dharmsala 20 or more years ago, I heard of this Lama Geshe Rapten, who was supposed to be up in the mountains, up in the top of the hill, and uh, one could get teaching from him. And that sounded easy, but he didn't speak English. So we found out where there was a translator that took some time and translated, said, sure, I'll come with you and we'll ask him. And then so I come tomorrow, and tomorrow we went, and the translator wasn't there, so we went another time. <laughs> and the translator was there, and he said, okay, but he's not up there right now. <laughs> so he said, come Wednesday, you know. So we went Wednesday, and we finally went up there, and the teacher was there, and he translated. And he said, oh, wonderful, yes, yes, you're most welcome to come, you know. Come next Tuesday. <laughs> I'll teach you. And the next Tuesday was full moon, and the Tibetans often especially in India, they don't think that much, you know, ahead of time to figure exactly which day, you know, in four days is full moon. So on full moon, they all go down to the temple 
and nobody's going to give teachings and translate. So we found out, and they said, okay, come today after full moon. And then, you know, we went and we got the teachings, and it was great. It took some time, and it was very appreciated. It was two hours. Nobody thought two hours was too long, you know. It's interesting to see what that does. I think it's wonderful that people do come from far, from very far, to retreats. Do use their free time and vacation to come to retreat. Costs a lot of travel money and being here. And I think it is important that we are willing to put up with quite a lot to get teachings. Of course, we prefer them easily available, nicely presented, entertaining, where there were no highlights and stories if possible, so we don't get too bored. I think it's an interesting form, the form of the request and it would be quite nice to keep it alive in the West. The loss of these limbs, this dedication and sharing. When we complete the meditation or the retreat, or any kind of good work or activity, we can dedicate that positive energy, those good qualities that have been generated, either to a specific purpose, or to the liberation of all beings, or share it with others, as we do sometimes at the last few minutes of the late night sitting share it with our teachers and parents and children and partners and managers of the retreats and friends, enemies and unknown ones. Again, it gives our life a clear direction, a little similar to refuge, but it's more at the ending of something we direct that energy. And our stream of life might be meandering, but yet the basic direction is set by dedicating this positive energy to freedom, to freedom for all beings. Sharing also puts emphasis on the non-accumulative, non-acquiring attitude of spirituality. It makes it open and flowing, generous. Rather unconcerned with personal results and gains and benefits. And therefore there's no, not so much an upholding of artificial separation, boundaries or dualities. like my practice, and this is happening to me, and I'm making this kind of progress. It more is just happening. We practice because it makes sense to practice. It doesn't matter what happens in it. 
not so much concerned then for the one who does the practice or the result of my practice, my fruit. And what appears and what manifests then can be a play or a celebration. And whatever that is that appears in practice can be appreciated and seen in its beauty. We could sit quietly I read a short version of the dedication from the last chapter of Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara or entering into the activity or the practice of the Bodhisattva in a picturesque Indian style using traditional language but I feel it's quite meaningful. It's also a kind of dedication you can can consider, maybe not exactly in those words, but in in that sense, at the end of this retreat, and at the end of your sittings, of your days, but maybe also at the end of this retreat, which is approaching giving it a sense of further direction. Shantideva. Through the virtue of this practice, may all beings come to engage in the Bodhisattva's conduct. May all beings everywhere, plagued with sufferings of body and mind, obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of this merit. May all animals be free from fear. May all hungry ghosts be satisfied. May the regions of hell become places of joy with lotus pools and with ducks and swans. May the blind see forms. May the deaf hear sounds. May the naked find clothing and the hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and delicious drink. May the poor find wealth. May the sorrowful find joy. May the forlorn find new hope, happiness and prosperity. May there abound in all directions gardens of wish-fulfilling trees filled with the sweet sound of the Dharma proclaimed by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. May all beings uninterruptedly hear the sound of the Dharma. May all may they always meet with Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. May beings not fall into low realms, and may they never know any hardships, and may they swiftly attain Buddhahood. And for as long as suffering beings remain, may I too abide in help, dispelling the misery of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.